Well, hello, good people. You're listening to Mission Possible. I'm Sheila Murphy, Chief Mobilizer for Mission to Mobilization. We are resourcing returning citizens and changing their perception. Their challenges, successes, hearts, and highlights are wonderfully blended into this tapestry of nightmares turned dreams into reality. These are our citizens positively impacting your communities. Later in the show, you don't want to miss Coach Nate's battle plan. He's giving us tools to strategize the challenges we often face in this gift we call life. Okay, let's get down to it. This week's Mission Possible guest is Saul Corbin. Saul is changing lives by helping to reduce homelessness. I met him some time ago via a mutual friend, and I knew our audience would be encouraged by his story. Please give a big Mission Possible welcome to our friend Saul Corbin. Saul, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. We want to have you get us started. I wanted you to just to provide a an overview of your incarceration, the conditions around your release, and really how you got to the work that you're doing now. So when I was in graduate school, this was back in the latter 1980s, beginning of the 1990s. I was doing an internship at a psychiatric hospital as part of my curriculum, and I developed an attraction for one of the patients, wrote some letters to her, and later was found or determined those letters to be inappropriate. And I guess about three years after that, I had left graduate school, I got my master's, and I had started teaching in the D.C. area psychology classes as a psych instructor. And one morning there was a knock on the door and um, I was taken into custody and charged with a plethora of charges that um, were later dismissed. When I went to court over the charges of indecent liberties, I was given a 12-month sentence of which I served four months in a local jail. Um, When I was released, I had a 10-year probation. And what I did was went back to graduate school to complete my Ph.D. I went back to teaching, started teaching psych classes all over the place, eventually landed a full-time position as a psych professor at a community college, eventually also becoming an academic manager for another college simultaneously. And I did all that for about 10 years without incident, really loved what I was doing, enjoyed the work. And then a couple things changed uh, after that 10 years. The internet blew up and registries started popping up everywhere. And so with my I'm popularity- I'm sorry, I, I hate to interrupt you. What kept popping up? Registries. Okay. With my popularity as an instructor, uh, what would happen, people would start to look me up. They'd start to Google me. They would find out about my past because I wasn't telling anybody. And then I would start to lose employment. I would lose opportunities. I would lose relationships. And so I lived in about, for about 10 years in shame after that, just trying to hold on to whatever I could get. Eventually got a spiritual foundation through the church again, went through transparency that is facing the shame of my past and starting to share my story, uh, which at first was very, very difficult. Eventually became very, very empowering, not only to me, but to the folks that I was sharing the story with. Wasn't working at a, um, well, I'm sorry, I got a job as a um, workforce development trainer for a nonprofit that was targeting uh, returning citizens. Did that for four years, which included one year program management. Left that organization and through the church got a connection to my current place of employment, Friendship Place, 
which is a nonprofit trying to end homelessness in D.C., and actually applied as a case manager. They wanted me to be a housing specialist, which builds and develops relationships with landlords and property managers to develop affordable housing options for our participants. And from there, uh, grew to be the training coordinator, now liaison for the staff for the board, and also the racial equity officer. So that's the, the short version of how I ended up where I am now. <laughs> short yet very profound. It's amazing the your story and what you have gone through and even the the issues and or beauty that can come out of the internet. There's pros and cons, but that your story is, is amazing and how you navigated through that in the midst of really trying to put your issues behind you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the, um, that one, what was a curse, uh, kind of what you're saying ended up being a blessing in that it kind of pushed me into a space where I was living in secrecy and shame, but I was depressed and I was isolating myself socially. So when I kind of got to the bottom of my pit, the only thing that made sense to me to reverse this trend, to get, to start crawling out of this darkness into the light was to start sharing my story which is what I intentionally had run away from for 20 years. And so finally, I just started uh, showing up and sharing. I tried, to, you know, I tried to show up at every possible meeting. I didn't matter if it was a, you know, a basket weaving. I would show up and just start sharing my story. But it was very, very freeing. It was very liberating. And, you know, I used to, people used to always say, oh, the truth will set you free. And I used to say, ooh, boy, the truth will lock you up. I mean, you know, what you're sharing, right? So... But, but what I, as I went through the process, what I understood was that the freedom that you get from sharing your truth isn't the freedom of society's expectations or conditions for you. It's the freedom from everyone else filling in your script for you. When you share mm-hmm. your story, you are owning it, claiming it, empowered in it, and you're writing your own script. That's good. So they can't take that from you. That's and, right. and so you, so this, this cloud that's following you around of whatever shame is no longer there because you're empowered. There's nothing for you to run from because you've already claimed it. And that's then you right. can have other conversations and possibilities. So. Right. And you're able to shift that, that potential or could be perception, negative perception conversation that someone has with themselves about you. And you can turn that into where you want it to go in terms of what you're doing with your life and how you are positively impacting people despite what has happened in your past. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. I want you to not wear your work hat for a minute. And I want to talk about really this, what we're just talking about right now, kind of negative things that we see in our society. And I know that you have seen a lot. I want you to talk about two things that pain you about our society, the way our society handles returning citizens. Yeah, the two things that are most salient to me the first of which is you have a person coming from a disadvantage. They've been locked up. They've had to pay the price for some type of crime or mistake that they committed. And so they're already at a disadvantage. And now they're coming back out to reintegrate into society. And yet all of the doors are closed for them. And they're already disadvantaged. They're the ones that need the social support the most. But yet they come back into a world that expects them to do right but you can't get a job. You can't get housing. Uh, your your friends and family have moved on or rejected you. You walk into this world that is telling you you got to be yes, 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 and do right, but yet all of the opportunities are no, no, no. 
and it's a struggle. There's no wonder our recidivism rate is so high. The second thing I would say is the, the social isolation itself. You are not walking back into a society or culture with open arms. People are looking to reject you and judge you at any moment, depending on the situation. And so for me, it's always been, that's why the social support factor to me is the most important one of anything for a returning citizen, even above, beyond work and, and housing. That's that strong social support network, which unfortunately we live in a, a culture that continues to punish you and isolate you. True. It's, it's so true. There are um, the information that we have in our society now about how incarceration has impacted the family. I see how it has definitely impacted negatively our communities overall and it digs down into the the family the family unit and i want you to to speak on particularly the the father son relationship and how you believe those have been damaged and what are some things that we can do or that you can say to our listeners that may help to restore some of those things so i, th- I think the the father-son relationships, when we have such a high rate of mass incarceration, especially for people of color, for men of color, is, and, and if you look at a situation that is somewhat unique to D.C., where our citizens, our locked-up citizens, are sent to various parts of the country where contact with family is minimal and ability to get to see them is sometimes impossible. What you're, what you're, what you're talking about is the damage of an unpresent father. So the fathers aren't present to anything that's happening while they're dealing with all of this punishment that's going on independently. So what that does is for sons is they have to look for other influences, other models to follow. And if those are positive and present in the family, that's usually an easier adjustment. But if they're not, these young men are looking to friends or to the streets or to some other negative influence that can be very, very damaging and misleading. Suggestions to restore it, I would say start with continued or some kind of, I should say consistent, maybe not continued, consistent communication with inmates and their families. That's number one. Two, that there is support for them in their, especially closer to the exit, in returning home and having those difficult conversations, having those healing conversations, having those restoring conversations, the good and the bad of that experience with those sons, so that the entire experience is welcome and accepted as opposed to just the good or the bad of it. It is a life experience, and it's one that can be learned from, and it's one of those things that can be passed on that can actually strengthen a relationship between father and son if it's done the right way. Yes, beautiful, beautiful. And, you know, you cannot change the fact that the father is incarcerated. I mean, there are, you know, work that's being done as we're moving forward to do that. But in terms of folks that are actually in right now, they have to look at what are some things that they can do to build the relationship, prepare themselves as they get ready to get back into the community, back into the life of their sons and daughters. And, and, and that's, that's huge. I, I love that. Just that, that pre-work that can be done before they ever step out of incarceration. In looking over your life, I wanted you to go back and, and maybe think about a couple of different people that believed in you and thinking about those various relationships that you've had in your life. Who are a couple of people that believed in you and um, what kind of impact do you believe that they had on your life? Yeah, so I, I 
can tell you without a doubt, and, and anybody that's ever been in trouble will tell you this, when you get in trouble, people move away from you, not towards you. And sometimes you're really surprised that those people are, are the closest ones to you, sometimes even family. And I, while I get it, it's really an unfortunate thing. What you will find is that there are certain people that will stand by your side regardless. And their question is, isn't when you get into trouble, they don't ever ask you, oh, why'd you do it? Or what was going on? What were you thinking? I told you so. What they say is, and the only thing they have to say is, how can I show up to support you? What is it that you need in this moment? And there are key people that will show up that way. And I was blessed to have a mentor from my undergraduate, who's the one that kind of coached me into graduate school, who was one of those people. His name was Joe White, uh, who recently passed last year. Mm-hmm. And um, But just a father figure in every way. Others would be my father and my stepmother, just consistently there for me, regardless of the circumstances. What is it you need, and how can we support you in getting there? Always looking to wanting my life to be fulfilled and complete, and they're both, thankfully, still here with us. And so I I just treasure those relationships. And friends. There are select friends who will show up in ways to support you, whether it's financially or emotionally, or sometimes you just need to breathe or vent. So, uh, yeah, you have to stay open to finding those people, reaching out to them, because it's not going to be everywhere. You have to look for it. And and you're not going to find it often in places that you expect that you would. It, that's so true. And that, that unconditional love, the position of what can I do? How can, you know, showing up to be able to support you no matter what. And then there's the possibility that there may be conversations down the road about where you are, what's going on, or, you know, how did you get here? How can you maybe give you questions to reflect on how you got in the place you're in? But that is not, that's not the first thing that they say. And you're able to feel that unconditional love, that there being that friend to you, regardless of what you may be facing. And I've just recently been thinking about this, how important it is for us to be that to someone else. Everyone really wants people to to show up for them and they want people to help them. And, you know, when they're down, they're like, you know, I need somebody in my corner. Yet, are we that to others? And so it, it really is, it's another perspective to think about what we desire, what we want, and what we want to uh, reap is something that we should be sowing as well. It's such a valued point, Sheila, that do we give the grace to others that we've been given? And I think of, you know, when somebody's in crisis, that's, the, that's not the time to be asking them what happened. I mean, I know it's our kind of natural response to do that, but the first question should be, how are you doing and what do you need, mm-hmm. right? I mean, those, like you said, those conversations about what happened and what are we going to do, that could happen later, right? Like, where, where are you right? You're in crisis mode. Like, uh, that's why sometimes uh, when, when people are interviewed, when they're standing in the middle of a storm, it's like uh, people ask them well, how they're feeling. Well, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> Obviously, they're, it's, it's cold, it's wet. Right, I'm hurt. hurt. <laughs> Do you need to ask that question? Like, you know, can we get some shelter? How about, how about you ask me that? That's you know, right. So, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I hear you. That's a point well taken. Yes, yeah, thank you. So a lot of our listeners may or may not know, sometimes people are new to this conversation around the work that we're doing, Mission Possible, focusing on changing perception and resourcing returning citizens. But I wanted you to, from your vantage point, I know that this is subjective, but to share what you believe America thinks or perceives about returning citizens. Well, I 
still think there's a general negative kind of stigma attached to being perceptions of returning citizens that they're held accountable in unfair ways for their mistakes. So you got to only do the time and you got to pay for the rest of your life uh, because of this record that people can continue to access and bring up. So I think that that is still the case largely. However, I do believe that that perception is changing and this is an ideal time for it. And the reason for that is because the very policymakers and lawmakers that put these harsh conditions and set the tone for punishment in our criminal justice system are now starting to feel this thing of that themselves, whether they get accused of something or their sons or daughters or, or somebody in their family. And so I think people are starting to uh, adjust their, their temperament when it comes to returning citizens that they can actually come back and be these really powerful contributing models in our, in, in our world. And, it's starting to shift. Uh, conversations are leaning that way. You're hearing more talk about restorative justice and healing as opposed to just punishment and longer sentences. And uh, you're starting to see these programs pop up for returning citizens that begin before they even are close to coming out. But you're you're prepping them for that transition, and they're coming out just being just powerful, dynamic people, and and reaching back and and trying to prevent that from happening to our youth and. And just establishing those positive connections, uh, it, it's, it's a great time for it. But there's still a lot of work that has to be done. And it starts with something as simple as talking to folks. Talking to, we don't even talk to our neighbors. But if you can just have a conversation, a hi, how are you conversation with normal folks, doesn't matter if they're returning citizen or not, you will start to see the similarities in your walk rather than just the differences. That is so true. It's so true. I mean, I grew up that way where you knew your neighbors and you had a relationship with them and they were there for you. You were there for them. And so something as simple as a conversation, you will see the commonalities in our lives. The other thing I wanted to ask you when you were talking about dynamic and positive people, I was thinking, well, he's speaking about himself. You know, what are um, some other ways that you touch people's lives? What are some things that you that you do that you feel like I'm I'm giving back? So first of all is being present to those forums for returning citizens, whether that's a support group, whether that's a training, whether that's a panel, whether that's a, a festival, doesn't matter. We have to show up for them at the in these spaces. You can't just talk the talk. You gotta walk the walk. My walk looks a little like so I'm also a mediation coordinator for Community Mediation DC and that offers free mediation services to folks in the DMV. And one of our specialty areas is returning citizens who actually go into the jail and host conversations that they can have with their loved ones, with their friends, so that when they do come out, they're in a better place of support. Secondly, I do a lot of restorative justice work and training with DC Peace Team, which of course promotes a healing and redemption, healing and reconciliation as opposed to continued punishment. So I will go from place to place or organization to host those kinds of events and have a conversation about what that looks like because a lot of people don't know. And then just personally making sure that I keep the open ears of the conversation so that you know, I'm going to conferences and 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 I'm, I'm attending panel discussions and committees, whatever, anything that I can have access to to stay up 
to keep updated on the information itself. You cannot make informed decisions unless you're up to date on the information. And so while a lot of people throw out the buzzword, if you're not actively involved and know what's going on, then that can sometimes hurt the movement rather than help it. So I want to make sure that, you know, I'm as uh, abreast of the issues as possible. So. It's beautiful. You are a wealth of information and help and support for returning citizens and just people in general. And so with that wealth, I want to just pose this last question. And I ask our guests to think about if they had the opportunity to be in or speak into the homes of every American. What is one thing that you would want to share? I would share that we need to see the humanity in people. That's a little cliche, but here's what I mean. Like, this is another human being that is in front of you. And human beings are flawed by nature. There isn't a person on this planet that hasn't committed a mistake. And probably most of us have committed one that could be looked at as illegal. And so when we, when, when you start to see that we are flawed by nature and we will make bad choices and we will make mistakes that are sometimes hurtful to others, then the difference between those that are incarcerated and those that aren't is, well, probably they got caught. They, they made the, the bad decisions that put them in a place where their personal safety, their personal security, and, and that of others was compromised. So giving people that same space that you would want to have given to you. When I make a mistake, I want that person to allow me to explain myself, to, to, to hear me ask for forgiveness to get my perspective on it. And if I want that from someone that I have made a mistake against, then I owe it to that person to provide that same platform for them. So whether whatever their path is, and all of our paths looks different, you can't start comparing them about giving weight or gravity to the, to the crime or the mistake. We all make them. So, but when you could have a conversation about, hey, well, what was going on with you during that time? And, and how can I show up to support that? I mean, that's... And on both sides, that's to me what, what needs to happen. I think we're starting to move in that direction with just these basic conversations that can restore, build, build trust. And then from there, maintain even healthy relationships. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. You know, Saul, this has been just a, a great, a great conversation. You are so insightful and thoughtful and intentional about the work that you're doing past all of the challenges and what we're actually the purpose of this show is to show the mission that is possible of of change perception change behavior changing ways that people think about um, individuals that have have served time and that are out here doing really really good work and i'm just i've just been it's been a privilege really to spend this time with you and for us to be able to share your story with our audience so thank you again and i just appreciate you so much Thank you, Sheila. I, I really appreciate it. You know, my mission is to give to others as I've been given to. And and I've certainly had those people in my corner. And so I want to be in other people's corners as well. So uh, I appreciate the time. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. You're welcome. Saul is Mission Possible. And he's reminding us of the power of sharing. Sharing your story, sharing gifts and talents, and sharing your resources for the purposes of positively impacting others. Up next, Coach Nate shares this week's battle plan to equip us for success and victories in our personal mission. Nate? Hey human, Coach Nate here with today's battle plan. It was Brandy Chaston that said, 
You're going to make mistakes in life. It's what you do after the mistakes that count. We're going to make mistakes in life. That's a given. Mistakes are an indication of trying, of an effort put forward, and an opportunity, a learning opportunity. That's the way to look at them positively. Too often our influence is to look at them negatively, to look at them as disqualifying events of our imperfection. Newsflash, nobody's perfect. Of our inability, that's how we learn. No one is born knowing how to do everything, be right all the time, although some think they are, but that's not true. Mistakes, what you do after, how you pick yourself up, what you learn from them if you look at them as an opportunity versus something that, well, I'm never going to try that again because I was embarrassed or because it hurt or because that they laughed at me or you know what are others going to think about me. You've heard me say in other battle plans, what others think of you is none of your business. It's been said that the first time, it's a mistake. The second time, it's a choice. Give yourself some credit. Don't be so hard on yourself. If you make a mistake, learn from it. Pick yourself up. Move forward. Try a different path. Many times you didn't mean to make that mistake. You didn't mean for it to happen the way that it did, but it simply did. There may even be times where you knew better, but you went forward anyway and you made the mistake. And then you think you don't deserve a second chance. You judge yourself even more harshly than others judge you. Everyone makes mistakes. Some think them, some act on them. Every mistake can be recovered from. A mistake is an opportunity for you to look internally to see what got me to this point. Why was I here? How did I get here? And how do I not repeat this? If we look internally, if we look deeply, if we look for an opportunity to grow from it. Mistakes do not have to be a sidelining, disqualifying, you're no longer human occurrence. They are what we make out of them. Mistakes made can give us the opportunity to relate to others who may have made the similar mistake and perhaps we can utilize that, leverage that to help others to either help them avoid making that same mistake or perhaps they've made it and we can help them through it. Again, another use of a mistake. It can be put to good. Even the worst mistakes can be put to good use if we look for the opportunity. Even if you repeat that mistake and it's a choice, that doesn't mean the end. Character is built on our learning, on the challenges we face, and how we overcome them. What we do with life that's in front of us. How it happens or how we cause it to happen. We become better drivers when we're in an accident. As children, we learn to walk by our falling. We learn to ride a bike and stay up, either based off of the fear of falling or the desire not to because we know the consequences. So it's how you look at it. How you look at things is your character, is your viewpoint, and that then determines the outcome. Look at mistakes as an opportunity, both in character building and in learning. That is the path to your future, to your best potential, to you living up to your fullest potential. Until next time, this is Coach Nate. Live your best life on purpose now. Thanks, Coach. You know, when I was a little girl, our neighborhood had a small grocery store that was owned by Mr. and Mrs. Hickman. One day I stole some candy and my father asked me how I got the candy, knowing I didn't have any money. The image was as if it was yesterday. My father standing there talking to Mr. Hickman, me terrified about my fate. 
Then, Mr. Hickman said, Charles, I'm going to have Sheila work for what she stole. Starting tomorrow, have her show up and I'll put her to work. I wish I could say that that was the last time I stole. Well, it wasn't. One last time was when I took a boombox from a department store which landed me in jail for a day prior to me going off to college. Per the Pew Charitable Trust, there are 2.7 million children living with at least one incarcerated parent. That's one less parent providing physical love and support. That's one less parent engaged in financial and spiritual deposits. That's one less parent protecting and correcting the behavior of an impressionable child. How are you positively impacting others, whether that be children or adults? What positive conversations are you having with or about returning citizens? May I remind you, you are a game changer. Yes, you. Your speech has life and power. Use it. This week's proverb says, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Through our Free Families Life Group for Families Navigating Post-Incarceration as a Family Unit, the Walk Among Simulation, Friendly Congregations, and the Buy for Returning Citizen Campaign, we are resourcing returning citizens and making the mission possible. Choose one way you will be a part of this perception change. Learn how at missiontomobilization.com and follow us on social media. I'm Sheila Murphy, and this is Mission Possible. Don't forget to visit natebattle.com for today's battle plan. Until next time, create your battle plan and make your mission possible.